this morning. So we invite the little ones who'd like to, uh, or whose parents would like them to go down to depart at this time. Everyone else, we're going to be uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We've been working our way through 2 Corinthians since the fall. And now we've come into chapter 4, which is really one of the great chapters of the New Testament. And uh, we have some wonderful things in store for us. And um, today's sermon is on verses 3 and 4. Last week we covered 1, 2, and 5, which were about ministry. But 3 and 4 are sort of like a little parenthetical statement that um, Paul makes. We're going to focus on those today. Thank you for those of you who prayed for me this weekend as I, or this week as I was up in Boston at a preaching conference. What wonderful experience. Okay. Second Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So if someone were to ask you, how would you describe this world that we live in right now? How would you describe the world? Well, verse 4 describes to us the situation that our world is presently in and has been in since Paul said this in uh, you know, 2,000 years ago and before that. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel. It tells us that there's a power at work in this world blinding men from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And that God of this world, as Paul refers to him here, is Satan himself. Now some may be surprised that this kind of language is used about Satan, that he's referred to as the God of this world or the God of this age. The word can mean either. We know that God rules over all. How can Satan be the God of this world? Well, God, just like he allows earthly rulers to have certain amount of dominion, certain amount of rule over certain spheres, so God has allowed Satan to have some rule uh, in Jesus himself in John in the Gospel of John 1231, 1430, and 1611, refers to Satan as the ruler of this world. And the Apostle John in 1 John 5.19 says the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Now of course we know he has no ultimate power. 
But for his own purposes, God has given Satan a certain realm of power. In, but it's not... You notice the language. It's the God of this world. Not the God of everything. The God of this world. And, that, and the point is, there's another world coming. There's another world right now that exists that's not this world. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this time. This place. And he is blinding people to the glorious gospel of Christ. And that's really Satan's number one business. Most of the people we share this planet with are blind to the reality of Christ. Because of this devilish work. And of course this affects their ability to think straight and make good judgments and ascertain what is true. And it's important that we understand that they don't disagree with us because they're smarter than us or because they know things we don't know. They reject Christ because they're blind to him. Even the Bible experts who are often paraded out to undermine the Bible or to undermine the gospel of Christ are bl blind to the truth of the gospel. Just because they're Bible scholars doesn't mean that they are not blind to the gospel of Christ. You know, you can't do good theology, you can't come to good Bible conclusions if you are if your eyes are blind to the light of the gospel of Christ. Sometimes it's hard to put yourself in unbeliever's shoes. You know, how can people that we know and love hate something that is so beautiful? News that is so good. Well, it's not because it isn't presented well, though it often isn't. It's because they don't see the glory of it. Because they're blind. To them, the gospel is an insult. And the gospel is an insult. An insult to human pride. Now how's the gospel an insult to human pride? Because it says that mankind has failed. Mankind is a failure because it says that man cannot save himself. Because it says that people can only be saved by the undeserved grace of God, not by their own competence or cleverness or uprightness. Because it says that a perfect God-man needed to die on a cross to remove their enormous guilt that was theirs before a holy God. The gospel is an insult to human pride because it says that people can only be saved if they're willing to humble themselves before this one who came and surrender their lives to him. And proud people can't handle that. 
Because of Satan's blinding work, unbelievers actually prefer the darkness to the light. This is the judgment, John tells us in chapter 3, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Verse 19 and 20. And yet, this happily is not the end of the story. Sure, the world dwells in darkness, but Jesus, the light, has come. Just as Satan is the blinder, so the Spirit of Christ is the opener of eyes through the gospel. And when Christ met Paul on the road to Damascus and called him to be an apostle, he said to Paul, I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they might receive forgiveness of sins. That's Acts 26, 17 and 18. And elsewhere Paul says that Jesus rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So... People get delivered from this blindness, from this d- d- dominion of Satan. So for the unbeliever, there is still hope. As many here have experienced in our own lives. And what a privilege it is that when God gives you eyes to see. This week I had the privilege of hearing two Wonderful testimonies. The testimony of Ravi Zacharias, who was, uh, you know, grew up in India and um, was in the hospital at age 17, recovering from a failed suicide attempt. And there was a administrator of a mission organization in that hospital in India and there was one person on the hospital staff that knew both of these things they knew that this 17 year old kid had just tried to kill himself and they knew that this mission administrator was there in the hospital and they went to the administrator and they said would you be willing to go talk to this boy and because of that person who the one who I think is pretty clearly the the most popular apologetic Christian apologetic speaker in the world has as uh, came to Christ and had has had his wonderful ministry and then the other story was of uh, a boy who grew up in an Iranian Muslim family and uh, came here when he was three years old from Iran with his family just before the revolution to escape from the revolution and um, they hired because he you know when he went to school at five he didn't know English and this was in Texas and they didn't have ESL classes back then and so they hired a tutor 
Uh, his father was a physician, so they were well off. They hired a tutor to come in and teach him English. An Iranian tutor who could speak Farsi and English to, to be able to help him. And after a couple years of uh, teaching this five-year-old and six-year-old, um, you know, he became six, English, and then the job was over because he knew it well enough to be able to get along in school. Before she left him, as saying goodbye, she slipped him a New Testament. This six-year-old Muslim boy slipped him a, six, a New Testament and said, look, you're not able to understand this now. But please, when you grow older, take this book and read it. And he put it somewhere in his room and forgot about it. And then uh, when he was in high school, some Christian people began to talk to him about Jesus. And, and so he started thinking about this again. Then he remembered that New Testament. And he dug through his closet and found that book and read it. And by the time he got to Romans, God opened his heart. In both cases, these people, that just God just reached down and said, I want you, opened their eyes and brought, him, brought them to himself. And many of us have had similar experiences. As Ephesians 2 says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, referring to Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, children of God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, those precious words, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And the fact that people are blind to the gospel, to the reality of the glory of Christ, doesn't take anything away from the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. Blindness is a tragic reality. Think of it in terms of physical blindness. What a sad thing is it is that some people can't see. But just because some people are blind doesn't mean that there isn't a world of beauty to see and a world of beauty that is being seen. It doesn't mean that there aren't beautiful smiles and sunsets and flower gardens and national parks and snow-peaked mountains. You know, when you're at Yosemite National Park... What's astonishing isn't that some people are blind to that beauty. What's astonishing is that there's such a beautiful place on this earth like that. That many people can see. And the same is true of the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 
a light which is more beautiful than Yosemite and Zion and Bryce and Yellowstone and the Grand Canyon and all the rest of Earth's beauties rolled into one. The face of Jesus Christ. The sad fact that some are blind to it doesn't take away its beauty. Now this blindness means that many of us shouldn't blame ourselves when folks reject the gospel that we share with them. It's easy to do. You know, to get a little bit more under the surface of what Paul is saying in this passage, the apostle here seems to be responding to a charge that has been brought against him, a complaint that came to him from these false apostles who had infiltrated the church at Corinth. They were spreading criticism of Paul. They were saying that he was a poor speaker, that his teaching was too heavy, that his message was incomprehensible. So how, so here Paul is responding to those charges, to those complaints. He says that if indeed his gospel is veiled, that is, if indeed people aren't seeing it, it's because they are perishing in their sin. If his gospel is hard to understand, that's because the God of this world has blinded their minds. To keep them from seeing that light. The reason that these men did not accept Paul's gospel is not because of Paul. It was because of the Christ that Paul was preaching. That's who they didn't like. And just because someone rejects our message or our witness doesn't mean it's somehow our fault though we could always do it better though we always are faulty in the way that we represent Christ it's important that we hear what Paul is saying that there's a blindness if you try to show others Christ if you try to tell others about Christ and, and it's not successful, know that there are others who have done a much worse job that have been successful. Because God has opened eyes. Many Christians tend to take blame upon themselves for their children's lack of faith when they grow up and don't follow the Lord, for instance. Now, we ought to take blame for our sins in raising our children. And we ought to seek their forgiveness. And sometimes, of course, there's such a grave pattern of sin that it makes it impossible for our children to listen to what parents, our, their parents tell them about the Lord. But they criticize Paul for his preaching. He lacked eloquence, they said. He was hard to understand. But Paul wouldn't accept this as the reason some rejected his message. It was because their hearts were blind. 
Paul was an apostle of Christ, filled with his spirit, an official spokesman for Christ, and yet he had critics. He had failures. That is, he had people who turned against him, people who rejected his message, people who got one to Christ and then turned away from it. If, if an apostle has that kind of lack of success at times, how much more will we? But Paul says it's because of the blindness. Jesus himself lost one of his children, Judas. Even though Jesus was perfect, was it Jesus' fault? Of course not. It was the heart of Judas that was the problem. The point is that those who are blinded to the gospel will not embrace the gospel, no matter how eloquently it is presented, no matter how beautifully it is reflected in a person's life. Of course, those things can be the tools that God uses, but if he isn't at work opening their eyes, it's not going to work. Now Paul uses pretty strong language in this epistle against his opponents. Here he says that they're blind, blinded by Satan. He doesn't pull punches. Paul knew who he was dealing with. He understood blindness to the gospel only too well. He had been there. He had done that. And now he wasn't about to negotiate with people who were fighting Christ like he once did. He wasn't about to think that the problem with the Judaizers was a big misunderstanding. He knew them because he used to be one of them. He knew, for instance, that the, the way that they thought about the Messiah was actually all about them. It was a self-seeking attitude towards the promised Messiah. In their minds, he was the, the Messiah was to come to restore Israel's glory and to exalt Israel to a place of worldly prominence. And Paul understood this matter because it's exactly the way he thought before his eyes were opened to Christ. And since he was way above most of his peers, he, were, I'm sure, thought that when the moment came and the Messiah set up his kingdom, he was going to be right there at the top. The coming of the Messiah was all about his glory and his prospering. But instead of coming to exalt people, the true Messiah, Jesus, came calling people to humble themselves before him. And now, now that Paul has seen this and encountered Christ, he's taken all the things which made him think most highly about himself and he's thrown them in the trash. The things he used to think were his best attributes he realized were actually negatives. 
he had thought they were things which drew him closer to salvation, he realized that they were actually things that made him farther from salvation. When he came to see Jesus, his confidence in his own righteousness was thrown aside. Here was one truly righteous and whose righteousness was truly able to be received by faith. Whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. In verse 4, Paul speaks of Christ. He calls him the image of God. He says, Christ who is the image of God. Of course, God is not a man. God cannot be seen. God is invisible. But God has taken on human form in the person of Jesus, who is thus here called the image of God. He is the visible human reflection of God himself. Of course, mankind was made in the image or likeness of God. This means that in many ways when man was created, he was created to be like God. He was a reflection of God. But Jesus is unique in that he is the full, complete, and perfect reflection of God. The physical manifestation of the invisible God. As Colossians 1.15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. And the author of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. So if we want to know God, we look to Jesus. He is the perfect representation of who God is. And in him we see God. He said this himself. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. John 12.45 And so we say if you want to know God then come to Jesus. Jesus himself said if God were your father you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Come to Jesus. Come to God through Jesus. Put your hope not in the righteousness that you're trying to establish yourself by the way that you live. Put your hope in the righteousness of Christ who was the perfect man and who lived a holy life, and who went to the cross to suffer for our sins, and now he bestows as a gift his righteousness upon those who humble themselves before him. 
This is the gospel. This is the reason that we have life. This is what our eyes are opened to. And this is the reason that the world still largely dwells in darkness because they're still blind to this. We come to the table each week to celebrate Christ, to reflect upon his coming, to remind ourselves of what he did for us, to remind ourselves that he is our food and that all the things that we try to feed ourselves in this world are not real food that truly satisfies, but Jesus is the true food and the true drink. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come humbly now, grateful for the invitation that you extend to us to come and eat. Aware, O Lord, the great cost that it took to provide this meal for us, the very life of your Son. We come, O Lord, to cherish him, to nourish our souls in him. We pray that we would draw near to you as you draw near to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.